This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the film show and podcast that takes a look at new films in theaters and on streaming platforms and compares them to films from days gone by, either through the director or maybe one of the stars or or a genre of film, or perhaps uh, perhaps even uh, some of the people who work behind the scenes to make movie magic happen. My name is Stephen Cook, and I am a freelance journalist and film lover here in Halifax. And I'm Karsten Knox. I have a film blog called Flaw on the Iris. You can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. I'm also the film reviewer at the Knox office on CBC Information Morning in Nova Scotia. This week, we're taking a look at remakes, films remade from other languages or perhaps films remade from North American properties, remade overseas, or some confluence in between somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic. And we'll have more on that coming up after this. So Stephen, on episode 25 of Lends Me Your Ears, we did remakes. We were mostly talking about, I think, our favorite remakes but that was many, many episodes ago. A hundred and fifty, a hundred and forty-five, to be precise. Something like that. Or yeah, twenty-five. Anyway, math. Um, math exactly. But the the show has morphed somewhat since then, and and there are naturally a number that we wanted to see that we hadn't, and maybe some that we hadn't seen in ages that we wanted to revisit. Now, technically, I suppose some of these are just other adaptations of existing material, like books, um, but. It's hard to believe the filmmakers didn't have foreknowledge of the previous movies. Yes, that would be very strange. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, you know, and, and in our search for movies that have maybe had been remade across cultures, I discovered a bunch of movies that I didn't, some of which I didn't even realize had other versions or were from other versions. For instance, um, James Cameron's least talked about movie, True Lies, uh, is from is a remake of a French film called La Totale from 1991. Uh, very hard to find. No now, kidding. I would love to see that. Yeah. And not the, on any platform that I could. Yeah. And these are, this is the thing. A lot of these movies have, the originals have just vanished. And whether or not they were ever available in North America is the question, I guess. Uh, Some Like It Hot is a remake of a French film, speaking of uh, French films, called Fanfare of Love from 1935. Um, then there's the tourist, the Angelina Jolie, Johnny Depp picture, which isn't very well remembered really, but it was a remake also of a film called Anthony Zimmer. What about the James M. Kane story? The postman always rings twice. Of course, there was the 1946 version, uh, hard boiled noir detective story. Lana Turner. Yeah. yeah. Lana Turner. Then of course there was the seventies version, um, with, uh, Jack Nicholson. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then those, but there were previous versions of the, of that, that story done in French, Le Dernier Tournant, uh, the last turn of the road from 1939 and an Italian version, Ossessione. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah. Um, from 1943. Is that the Lucino Visconti version? I think. I, I believe you may um, be right. With uh, is it Terrence Stamp? I think. No, no, I'm thinking of uh, another film. But, but, um, yeah, Sessiani is. Uh, I think they were actually sued for copyright infringements. And, ah, I see. And uh, it it's available on Amazon Prime overseas, like in France, okay. but you can't see it on Prime in North America. Another frustrating uh, aspect of uh, the world of streaming 
Yeah. And it makes me wonder, like, if there are groups of people, like, employed in Hollywood to find these stories that might work for studios to produce, but then also kind of try to block the originals from being available. (laughs) Well, of course, we talked about one of the classic examples on a recent show with uh, Gaslight. Yes. Where MGM uh, bought the rights to a British film, which was on TCM recently. I I rewatched, we we watched Gaslight for for this uh, program, but then I watched the the British version, which predated it. And it's quite good. It's, it doesn't have quite the star power of uh, Ingrid Bergman and Charles Boyer and Joseph Cotton, but it's still very enjoyable. But MGM basically buried it in the vaults for years uh, and it wasn't available anywhere because of the remake and and they had bought the rights to it but uh, eventually they did make it available so people could compare and contrast yeah and that's what we're doing today oh one other one we went looking for oh profondes a profond profondes uh from 1981 which is a french and again once again a french uh thriller it was adapted to the trashy but highly entertaining Deep Water from last year starring Ben Affleck and Anna Darmus, which is a film I liked a lot more than most uh, critics. But then, yeah, you know. and based on a Patricia Highsmith novel. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, the French often take sort of British and, and North American uh, thrillers uh, and, and make great films out of them. The, the, some of the Jim Thompson uh, hard-boiled uh, pulp novels uh, were made into French versions before uh, they ever got their English versions made, and 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 uh, so it's it's not hard to argue that the French versions are, you know, because they're more cynical and less sentimental and and uh, you know more matter of fact, I guess, uh, about sex and death that uh, that they're often superior mm. to North American attempts to to tackle their own material. Yeah, well, I mean, I wish I could see many of these, but unfortunately, th- these are all all films that we had not much luck tracking down. Yeah. But let's go to uh, talk about the ones that are now out in cinemas and uh, and are very much available, the the originals. And, and we're going to start with a film called Living, which is a remake of Ikiru. And uh, Ikiru was made in 1952, directed by Kira Kurosawa. Living is directed by South African filmmaker Oliver Hermanus, and it's written by Kazuo Ishiguro, who, uh, you know, the Nobel Prize winning author. Um, and uh, this is, he basically takes this material from the Kurosawa film and puts it in the same era, more or less, in the 1950s, but in London. And uh, I had not seen Ikiru before, and I went and found it on the Criterion channel. And, uh, you know, I was familiar with Kurosawa's sort of samurai war epics, but this film is something else entirely. It's about a lifelong bureaucrat uh, who works in an office surrounded by towers of paper and sullen functionaries. Uh, he lives with his son and daughter-in-law who don't seem to care too much about him. And then he gets this terminal um, health diagnosis and faced with sort of imminent mortality, he struggles to assess the purpose in his life, frustrated by his his sort of profession and years of professional inertia, not to mention the fact he's just disconnected from people around him. And uh, and he he tries to sort of debauch figures. Well, if I can have a good time with the time I have left, then that's uh, that might be worth something. But it doesn't really work for him. And then he starts to realize maybe um, through the help and I guess the vision of a of a younger woman from his office, he starts to it inspires him to make something of himself using the power that he has with his work. And um and that's more or less the story of living as well. As well yeah, yeah that, those synopsis. The plot is very much the same, and uh, you know, I, um, I I really love both of these films. Um, I think 
I, I came to living first because I saw it at, in Toronto at the Toronto International Film Festival uh, last September. And it is a wonderful film. It's beautifully shot and incredible performances. Bill Nye, of course, is now nominated for an Academy Award for his work in Living, and it's very much worth seeing. It's in cinemas right now. Yeah, deservedly so. Yeah, and I mean, Ikiru, I also really enjoyed too, uh, it just be, mostly because I'm seeing, you're seeing a slice of, of, you know, Japanese life um, and culture through this story. And also, I think it, it tackles bureaucracy maybe a little more head on than the remake. Yes. Like, I think the remake is more about the character that Bill Nighy plays and, and about like of broader uh, sentiments about life and meaning. Whereas Ikiru is really taking shots at like that mostly male, um, you know, bureaucratic system and how uh, stuffy and, and, twisted it is and uh i really appreciate both films i think it's i think the remake is very impressive but i think the original is worth seeking out if you're interested yeah amazingly living is like 45 minutes shorter or 40 minutes shorter than the original uh and and yet it does a lot through the compression of the story and and this kind of focusing more on the character than on on the environment as it were and then the the social mores and and the, and the satire. So it's, a, you know, they're two very different films adapted from the same uh, material. And uh, I really like the fact that, that they complement each other in such a, an interesting way. I mean, I mean, this show is basically about the fact that often, the, the, you know, the remake gets tarnished as a pejorative, you know, that yeah. it's, oh, it's just a remake, you know, it's not original, but, uh, you know, as, as, uh, as, you know, people like me are fond of pointing out, well, the Maltese Falcon with Humphrey Bogart was the third adaptation of, uh, of Dashiell Hammett's novel. And it was the, the third time was a charm because, uh, the first one was an interesting pre-code version. The second one was not very good at all. And it was the third one that really hit it out of the park. So, uh, obviously you can't, uh, you can't, uh, tarnish uh, or paint all, uh, remakes with the same brush. Sometimes it's, it's, it's a great way to take a new look at fresh material. And, and in, in the case of uh, living and Ikaru, it, it certainly is. I mean, uh, I feel bad that it took me this long to come to around to watching Ikaru. It was, um, it was certainly, uh, Kurosawa's uh, favorite movie, apparently, according to some sources, that it was uh, of all the films that he made. I mean, there's not a samurai or a hard-boiled detective in sight in this film, and yet, uh, you know, those it, it's it's really not uh, one of his trademark films, as it were. You know, Toshiro Mifune isn't in it, and yet it, he thought it was his uh, the one that was closest to his heart of the stories that he told on screen. Yeah, and it's one that one thing that really impressed me about Living that mimics the original is a third act structural conceit yes. wherein uh, something happens. I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen either film, but uh, the third act, much of it is told in flashback through the eyes of supporting characters. And, uh, and that's true of both films in a way that I don't know that I've ever seen before done this way and this successfully. You know what I mean? Like, like there's, um, you know, I've, flashbacks is a, obviously a, it's a much used technique in storytelling through feature films, and and sometimes it just feels like a crutch for the screenwriter. This is done so well and so elegantly, and that's especially true in Living, where I'm just like, in Ikiru, it's a group of men sort of sitting around a, a table eating and discussing something that, uh, and they sort of come together on a on a sort of a plan or of a of a you know of a thought. They 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 kind of find consensus. Whereas 
in living, it's the same kind of thing, but it's done over different in different scenes with different characters. And you get a broader sense of, of the effect that the lead character has on everybody in the story. Um, I thought that was so well done. Um, I kept thinking about, uh, you know, what uh, Andy Dufresne said in uh, The Shawshank Redemption. Get busy living or get busy dying. <laughs> I feel like there's a very similar sort of um, thematic concern here. Yeah, and I'm I, I, I'm guessing that uh, for Hermanus, it was uh, probably a real head scratcher about how to approach that. You know, whether to to just do something similar or just um, just follow the narrative thread, you know, through to its conclusion, as it were. Uh, and uh, the fact that he tackled the same kind of uh, third act structure. And then did it successfully. It's pretty impressive, uh, and and to to put his own spin on it, uh, I thought was was very effective. I I think uh, I mean I I watched Dickaroo first, and then I watched Living, um, and uh, so you know when that when that happens, uh, it's it's kind of it comes as a surprise, and then you know we get to spend time with these other characters that have been kind of lurking around in the background of the story as they discuss uh the, the main character the, the the bureaucrat and and uh his accomplishments in his life and they're they're trying to take credit for stuff that he did and it's 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 very broadly comic in in the kurosawa film it's it's a kind of an abrupt shift in tone that still it's it works it's very funny there's there's a lot of satire going on there but it's it's um it's done a lot more smoothly in in the remake I mean, obviously, the I think I feel like the original film was very ahead of its time in the way it addressed things like like cancer and and mortality uh, on a on a very human level, and I, I feel like that's why it's a classic because it was a unique film for its time, and it, and um, you know that it, it kind of lingers in the in the mind still long after you've seen it. But but I think I feel like living is um, you know much more smoother, much more naturalistic kind of uh, approach to it. Yeah, I you're, I absolutely agree and 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 it the, the word I keep coming back to is elegant. Like there yes. is it is extraordinarily elegant, extraordinarily elegant and so is Bill Nye's performance. I mean it it's just so he's just found that now after years of playing supporting characters in a number of films, he occasionally will play a lead, but it's not very often. He's found I think just kind of what feels to me like his defining character. He just plays it so well a repressed, somewhat emotionally uh, sheltered um, character who has a lot of people have a lot of respect for him in his, you know, his subordinates do anyway, maybe even fear. But then, um, you know, who goes through this wild change late in life and and makes makes that change and is is just and all of his sort of joy comes through in the performance. Um, and it's not just him. I mean, the whole production is terrific here. Uh, the look of the thing, uh, archival footage of London in the opening credits, I thought were amazingly well used. Cinematographer Jamie Ramsey uses a pal palette of deep, saturated colors and the, the blues and the woolen pinstripe suits with costumes by Sandy Powell are just yeah. awesome. Oh, it looks amazing. Uh, there's so much darkness sort of in silhouette and sort of a hypnotic glow around lights. Uh, and then I love the score as well in Living, um, a, a sort of contemplative piano and strings by Emily Levin. Vanessa Farouche, which I, again, once again, hoping I'm pronouncing correctly, it just creates this whole spell in the cinema that in some ways feels both kind of old school, but also very modern. Hi, and welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears. And uh, in this show, we're taking a look at recent remakes, either 
foreign language remakes of North American films or vice versa. And right now we're making uh, a beeline for the Western Front because there's a brand new Oscar nominated production uh, of All Quiet on the Western Front based on the novel, the uh, the anti-war novel from uh, the early 1900s by Eric Maria Remarque. Uh, I'm probably mispronouncing that, but um, it was famously made into uh, an Oscar winning best picture uh in 1930, All Quiet on the Western Front, directed by Lewis Milestone, which exists in, uh, it was a talkie, but there's also a silent version. I believe it probably started production as a silent film in the late, late 28, 1928 or thereabouts. And uh, you can get both versions on the Blu-ray. And it's interesting to, to see the differences between the silent and sound versions of that film. It was remade as a TV movie in the 1970s with um, Richard Thomas from the Waltons played the main character, the young German soldier who uh, goes straight from high school into the into the trenches, and uh, Ernest Borgnine, I, play, I believe, played the sort of the jaded uh, senior uh, sergeant who uh, who guides him through the, the the ways of warfare. And now we have a brand new version, which is uh, not so much again, as we said earlier in the in the show, uh, not so much a remake of the original film, but uh, a new production going back to the source material of the novel and and kind of looking at that because of course uh you know certainly movies based on books in the 1930s weren't necessarily terribly faithful to the source material often because they couldn't be because of uh, either the production code um or even in the pre-code movies there were certain things you couldn't show in terms of violence and and uh, and and sex and so on although having said that the uh, there is some violence in the 1930 all quiet at the western front that's pretty uh, pretty shocking for yeah. its time. Yeah, uh, some, for sure. of the, some of the uh, deaths in the trenches are are fairly graphic for, for 1930, and there's some horrifying images, uh, as there are in this new version, directed by, um, I believe, uh, Edward Berger, Berger? Um, who uh, has uh, been, he's a German uh, director, but he's been working in North American uh, TV, and uh, this is a, a feature film that is on Netflix, so... Uh, it's easily uh, available, but it would have been nice to have seen it in the theater because it is visually stunning. It is uh, it is a feast for the eyes in all of its glory and horror uh, as uh, it takes us even further into the trenches than uh, the other previous versions. Yeah, we talked about those earlier versions yes, in our World War One uh, episode. I can't remember what number that is. I mean, if you're if you're keen listener, feel <laughs> free to go back and dig it out because it's out there on the yes, in I, the internet. I think I put the title uh, "Worst World War." Was the jokey title that I put on that particular episode? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so uh, we went and back and watched films that adapted or or told stories from that era. But uh, you know, this this definitely qualifies as a cross cultural one because those early versions were American, and Hollywood really, I guess, you know, took this material and and told it twice. But we haven't seen a version of it for over 40 years. And this is the first time it's been done in German. So that gives it an especially, um, I guess, gritty sense of authenticity, which I very much appreciated. And it is certainly a, um, you know, it's a solemn and reverent and very well made film. It has all the departments here, I, I felt like we're working at, you know, at 
excellence, uh, you know, in broad strokes, uh, from production design to sets to costumes, the sound design, direction, cinematography is gorgeous, and all the performances. I love the apocalyptic score by Volker Bertelmann. I mean, it's like this, yes. it's like three notes. Some amazing music of, in this. Kind of uh, refrain that we keep hearing over and over again as the war is coming in, and then these young men. And the story is, you know, people may know, is is about a group of friends. They're very keen. They're young men. They're like in their late teens, early 20s. They really want to go and fight for the fatherland. And they're coming in, though, late in the running. They've, they arrive in, in, late 27 or 1917 and they uh you know they they've they're getting uh they're getting uniforms that have already been worn by soldiers who were killed on the battlefield and of course they are completely clueless to this but we 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 figure it out because of an interesting sort of opening credit um just after the opening credits we see these uniforms being sewed and knitted um you know in a in a factory by women and so we're seeing how they're being uh, you know repurposed and uh yeah um uh, but uh but you know when they get to the front they these these four four friends uh and then they meet a couple of veteran soldiers along the way they find nothing there but noise and mud and blood and death and and it's really one by one the friends meet terrible ends on the battlefield all through seen through the increasingly traumatized eyes of the the central character paul played by uh felix Kammerer. and uh he's really good in it and i mean it's it's in, it's entirely gripping uh, I, I, the, the film sort of flashes forward to November 1918. So in the final days and hours of the war, and we start to spend time with a, with one Matthias Erzberger, who's played by Daniel Bruhl, is a German actor who we see a lot in, in Hollywood. He's trying to negotiate a peace for the, with the French. Meanwhile, a General Friedrichs, played by David Striesau, uh, refuses to accept defeat. And so there are these kind of like, uh, conflicting forces of people in power at the very end of the war and soldiers, of course, on the battlefield having to pay the price. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it is, it's, it's, I won't, I won't, uh, soft pedal it. I mean, it is bleak and intense. It is, it is absolutely successful as an anti-war screed. I will say that. Um, but, uh, yeah, and it is, it is, yeah, as you say, Stephen, it would have been great to have seen it in the cinema. Yeah, this uh, film really does expand on uh, the novel, and it's certainly um, uh, a lot more, I think, a lot more powerful than the versions that we've seen before. I, I mean, the, the 1930 version is powerful, but uh, it, it can't really uh, go for the gut punch the way that this version can with, with by you know basically showing a little more realistic violence and, and uh, really driving home what the conditions were like in the trenches and so on. It's certainly a lot more realistic in that regard, but it's also very poetic in its uh, approach to the characters' thoughts about fighting and living and dying and so on. And uh, the the behind the front machinations of, of the generals and the diplomats and then the bureaucrats, I, I found uh, that focus uh, kind of welcome to, to, to actually see what was you know, going on, you know, where the, the, one of the generals at the, the armistice talks complains that the cream puffs aren't fresh, you know, meanwhile, you know, everybody's at the front is like fighting with rats to get their food and, and, uh, you know, dealing with, the uh, you know, meals that are filled with bugs and things like, like the contrast between what's happening behind the lines where they really have no clue as to what the, the men are going through. They're just basically telegraphing their orders to the front and hoping that they'll gain a few more yards uh, 
of of land. It's it's just uh, the futility of the whole thing is is really driven home here. Not that uh, anyone really needs to be told how futile the First World War was, but but you know this does give an interesting picture of of the Germans trying to be reasonable and the the arrogant French demanding like no compromise, even though without the Allies they would have just been steamrolled basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 just the. You know, and of course, we all know what uh, the terms of that armistice led to uh, just a short uh, decade or so later. So, uh, you know, that the irony of that is is also uh, kind of it's that that is not uh, you have to kind of know a little bit of the history, obviously, but they, they don't hit you over the head with it. But when you know it, it just uh, it just drips with irony. And, and uh, uh, I really enjoyed how they handled that material as well as the, the soldiers kind of day to day struggles. Yeah, absolutely. I I don't know that, you know, it's funny when I first heard about this film, I'm like, I think you and I are someone who we we're, we don't have any trouble watching old movies and enjoying them as well as we can. But uh, I was like, do we really need another one of these? Yeah, I was thinking that too, but it's like, oh no, this is <laughs> actually really, really good. And the fact that it is in German, I think, and, and shows a different perspective as you've been discussing is, um, is really important. So, I mean, you know, there, there can never be enough anti-war movies and this is truly one of the better ones I've ever seen. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think it is important to have movies with this message on a on a more regular basis, uh, especially after the year of Top Gun Maverick. Uh, I feel like we need to counterbalance that kind of raw uh, raw jingoism uh, of that film, which has you know been universally praised pretty much. But uh, it's 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 always key to remember yeah. what uh, what the soldiers on the ground have to go through, and and obviously the First World War is very different. Than modern warfare, but uh, there's some aspects of it will never change. No, if you look at what if you look at the news from Ukraine, you exactly, might, uh, yeah, and you know that's yeah. why I love the scene with the there's a scene with the tanks uh, coming out of the out of the the clouds of gas, and there's one of the most terrifying things you can ever. It's like a, it's a horror movie, uh-huh. uh, is is what it is. It's not just a war movie, and uh, that scene was a, was amazing to see that portrayed as well. Yeah, yeah, I actually didn't love. Top Gun Maverick as much as some people did. <laughs> I, I didn't I, see it. So I, I, I like <laughs> I like the I like the stuff in the air, but the stuff on the ground was really lame. yeah. Anyway, let's move on to uh, another couple of films: yeah. A Man Called Ove and A Man Called Otto. A Man Called Ove came out in 2016. It's a Swedish film, and it is a, a delightfully um, you know crowd pleasing story about an irascible elder named Ove who sort of terrorizes his community, slowly growing a bond with the woman next door uh, in this sort of suburban Stockholm community, I guess Stockholm, somewhere in Sweden. And it's a delightfully dark comedy. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's, and he, he basically is a character who is so rule obsessed that he makes everyone's life around him difficult. And then we discover that he is in terrible grief because he misses his recently deceased wife. And he's basically trying to find a way to kill himself with every kind of quiet moment he has, which he keeps failing, mostly because his neighbors keep interrupting him. And, uh, yeah, and it, is I saw it a few years ago. We showed it at Carbonark Cinema here in Halifax, and uh, I thought it was a delight. And I was like, you know, if 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 only Hollywood, you know, people in North America weren't um, opposed to s- subtitles, this could be a huge hit because it was so charming and so much fun. Well, you know, wouldn't you know it? They went <laughs> and remade it. Uh, film directed by Mark Forster, a man called Otto, and it uh, and is also partly based, I guess, on the original book as well. And, uh, you know, you've got um, you've got Tom Hanks playing the role in, in an American suburb somewhere. 
Um, you know, and I mean, the question really Pittsburgh, here is I believe, Pittsburgh. Is yeah. And the question here is, is how well do, a job do they do? Well, I mean, I guess if I hadn't seen a man called Ove, I might have enjoyed it more. I thought it was fine. I thought the remake was fine. Hanks gives us a character like we haven't seen from him before. Once again, shows his incredible range. Um, but some of the jokes that were the best jokes in the original film, which I thought was hilarious. Uh, you know, the new film is, as you'd expect, much more sentimental. And, and soppy and squishy yeah. um, than the first film. And the jokes, one of the best jokes in the original film was a, the fundamental difference between Saab owners and Volvo owners. That does not tra- work when transposed to Ford and Chevy. I don't care what you say. <laughs> uh, so yeah. All that was missing was a picture of Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes urinating on the logos of, the, yeah. <laughs> of, of either Ford or Chevy. Yeah, I just didn't find that work nearly as well. That's the, probably the biggest difference is although the new film has some things to recommend it, um, it is moving. And, and of course, they, you know, it's it's a real tearjerker. Um, it is not nearly as funny or as sharp as the original. No, it's it's not. Uh, I enjoyed it on a certain level. I I do prefer the original uh, Swedish film. It was also based, of course, on on a novel that was very successful and numerous. It was translated into English and and. Uh, I think the Swedish film was successful on a certain level because a lot of people read the novel in English and then saw the movie in Swedish. So uh, I think the success of the novel as well as the the prominence of of the uh, the original film are kind of what led to this uh, this film, which uh, Hanks uh, also produced. His wife uh, Rita Wilson is listed as one of the the executive producers as well, and and his own son plays himself in the flashbacks. Which, yeah, Truman. Uh, Truman, which works reasonably well. I, 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 I didn't think he actually looked that much like his dad. I was like, oh, you don't look or actually act that much like your dad. But, well, you know, OK. I didn't think he was that great an actor compared to his dad. Uh, I thought that I thought well, once I figured out it was his son because I saw the name in the credits. I think, yeah. oh, OK, well, that's obviously uh-huh. Truman Hanks uh, playing his his own dad in the flashbacks. Um, he, he kind of. He's he's a a, a bit of a, a a wet blanket, I think, as an actor as that character, and also the 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 uh, American remake also kind of soft pedals um, his childhood and the the child the tra- childhood trauma that kind of helped shape who the man he was. Like we don't get as good an understanding of why he is the way he is um, in the uh, the remake as we do in the original Swedish film, and that's. That's kind of unfortunate, and that maybe they filmed it and left it out because it, it is his childhood is, is a bit grim, uh, and uh, maybe they cut it for time. I don't know, but um, you know, I I felt that uh, we we get a we definitely get a better understanding of the character. Having said that, it's it's you know it's 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 Tom Hanks. He's he's certainly uh, it's certainly nice to see him play a more normal character. Say after Elvis and uh, the remake of Pinocchio that we'll talk about later. Like a, it feels like. At least he he he's a you know fairly lived in with the character more so than the sort of caricatures that he played in those other couple of films that I've seen recently. So it's 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 like the flip side of Mister Rogers, basically. He's yeah. playing like the anti Mister Rogers, and I kind of I kind of enjoyed how he was, you know, playing something that's kind of the polar opposite of a of of a recent performance that uh, he was fairly acclaimed for. So. Uh, you know, it's 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 uh, it's enjoyable on that level, uh, but but uh, certainly not uh, not a superior version in any way, shape, or form. No, no, I I would uh, 
point towards uh, the performance of Mariana Trevino, uh, who is his neighbor in this film. I think she's great. She's really the heart of the thing. Every time she's on screen, I really, I love the film. I think she's a great, plays a great character. Um, and I also uh, appreciated that the sort of like the convenient villain of the real estate developer goons. Um, I sort of enjoyed that part of it. Uh, and, and you know, although I didn't care much for some of the more heartstring pulling choices of songs in the movie, you can never go wrong with Kate Bush. And when she or you can, <laughs> <laughs> that that kind of took me out of this. I was like, really? really? I, I, I love that song. Yeah, and I it kind of I don't know. Maybe it made me a little mad to hear it used <laughs> in such a cloying way. Well, I, I was just like, all right, I I I can't. I got no defense against Kate Bush. So anytime oh, she's well, on, I'm no, just like, normally I don't. But it just it didn't seem like the right song for that moment. Right. I, I thought that I, I just like, wait a minute. Like as soon as the piano starts, I knew what the song was. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, I think it's from another movie too. It was a baby boom, I think, or, or, or she's or having she, a baby, she's having a baby. That's yeah. It. So yeah. first of all, yeah. it's, it, it broke the rule of using a, a song that's already associated with another film. Yes. Uh, which is one of those, that's actually one of Quentin Tarantino's rules, which he kind of breaks with uh, Jackie Brown. Cause he uses a hundred cross 110th street uh -huh. in that, but, but he, in one of the interviews for, Pulp Fiction, I think, for the soundtrack, uh, plugging the soundtrack and saying like it was a crime to use a film, a song from another movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, but he'll break his own rules. Oh, of course. Time. Yeah, he's yeah. such a hypocrite. But anyway, <laughs> um, but that 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 seemed, and it just didn't. The, I mean, I love that song, and I could see how it related to his wife, who was a school teacher, and and although they don't really spend as much time. Uh, on her story as they did in the Swedish remake either or Swedish original either. But uh, for, for what he was feeling in that moment, it just didn't seem like the right song uh, as much as I love that song. And then, you know, like it automatically, you know, stirs something and I'm guessing that's why they used it, but it, it seemed uh, it somehow seemed out of step. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. I mean, I, yeah, it's, it's, uh, there are ups and downs with the man called Otto. I would still point people to the original if you are keen to see these, one of these movies, but, uh, but I mean, it was actually fun to compare and I, I won't lie. I did get a little verklempt at the end of Otto just because it was just, you know, it was Hollywood and that's what, that's what they do. That's their, their, their thing. That's the thing. I, 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 I'm not, uh, I don't think uh, a man called Otto is a failure in terms of uh, you know readapting the story, uh, but it it is you know it isn't uh, it does feel like a like a remake of the film as opposed to a reexamination of of the novel, which is you know what we get with uh, All Quiet on the Western Front and and uh, you know I, I I think Tom Hanks is you know is very good as as the main character, but uh, if you've seen the original. Uh, you're just going to have all these callbacks to, to various things. I, I did, um, you know, as you say, I did like the version of the, the real estate guys, uh, there in this case, it's uh, Mike, Mike Birbiglia, a comedian that I'm quite fond of, uh, plays the, the real estate guy who's trying to take over people's homes and force them out. I, I feel like that, uh, that aspect of the film is a little sharper and a little more deftly handled in the original as well. But, um, uh, I, I like that it was maybe pared back a little bit uh, in this film to focus more on Otto mm. in some ways. But um, uh, so, again, <laughs> see the original uh, if you can. But, uh, uh, you know, if you like Tom Hanks, you won't be 
overly disappointed, I don't think. No, no. Let's move on then to uh, two more, another pair yes. of ma- of originals and remakes. Uh, Let the Right One In from 2008, which is a, a wonderful, another, another Swedish film, a vampire picture, which is available to be watched, I think, on Tubi. I watched it on Hoopla, the uh, library, uh, the free library borrowing movie system. Um, and Let Me In from 2010. They did not waste any time remaking this film. It showed up two years later in uh, in cinemas, the uh, American remake. Um, and uh, yeah, directed by Matt Reeves, who has gone on to have big success with the Planet of the Apes mo- movies and the recent Batman movie. Um, and he is a talented filmmaker, and there's no doubt you can see that in the way he makes. He remade the film in uh, in the style of it. There's there's certain technical things I really liked uh, about it. You know, I liked Elias Coteus. Uh, you know, there are things about it I like, but it is a, a hollow. Uh, you know, version of what um, Thomas Alfredson was able to do with the original film. I mean, there just is no comparison. And, uh, and I, there even parts of it even made me angry. I was just like, because, because I think that the problem is, is a lot of American remakes of international genre pictures, they, they make the implicit explicit. The relationship with the audience is a different beast. And I just think that there's just less trust in the audience. And that's why it's just it's just a dumber movie. And that's <laughs> why I didn't like it nearly as much. Now, again, if I hadn't seen the original, I might have been more forgiving of these things. But the original is a stone cold classic. Watching it again, I was reminded of how good it is. A story basically 12 year 12 year old kid Oscar living with his mother in late 1970s Sweden. He's troubled. He's being bullied by boys in his school. He fantasizes about getting revenge on them. Meanwhile, while another 12-year-old moves into the apartment next door to him in his, uh, you know, suburban apartment block. And uh, she's with an older man who we think might be her father at first, but in fact is kind of her servant, her slave. Uh, she is a her vampire. Renfield. Her Renfield. Her Renfield, yeah, if you will, exactly. Speaking, I can't wait for that movie. Yeah. Um, now she's she's a vampire and she has this man go and secure food for her, but he's which basically means murdering people and draining them of blood. But he's not actually very good at it. It's amazing that they've gotten as far as they have. Uh, and so she has to go out herself to find her prey. And uh, she meets Oscar when they're just hanging out. Oscar's just hanging out in the uh, courtyard. And and this tension is like, is she going to eat him or is she going to become his friend? And he starts to understand what she is over the course of the story. Meanwhile, we also get to know a few other people in the community. There's a couple where the man's best friend has been murdered by this young, this tiny little vampire. And uh, before long, uh, his partner is bitten and she's suffering in the very way you'd expect by by being bitten by a vampire, uh, cats don't like her. <laughs> Though actually one scene I thought didn't work quite as well is when there's a bunch of CGI cats that freak out when they see her. That special effect has an age too yeah. well. But otherwise, I mean, there's, there's a scene where, where someone goes up in flames in the hospital. That's amazing. Um, and another character goes out the window and we watch them fall in a way that I thought was very chillingly done. Uh, and the, I think the film depicts bullying in a way that I found really affecting. The child actors are all terrific. So, yeah, and I love the ending uh, because if you think it's kind of a romance between these two kids, you might find it's kind of happy, but it's pretty bleak if you think of Oscar as maybe another slave to this vampire. Um, anyway, what did you think of all of the comparison between these films, Stephen? Well, I, I loved the original when it came out, and I, I did not rewatch it for this uh, show, so I was kind of relying on my memories of it. But I, you know, I I, I really did uh, connect with how the two kids 
are kind of outsiders that connect in such an unusual way and and the sort of the the bleak everydayness of their surroundings of the setting and so uh, are, are what really made it effective for me and uh you know the the, the remake uh from uh from just like a, a year or two later yeah 2010 uh, um, you know doesn't really capture that in quite the same way i mean they try to have similar kind of settings in the high school and the apartment block and everything but uh, I don't know, just the way it's it's treated, it doesn't it doesn't really have that uh sense of reality, I guess, that we get from the original. Uh although I did th- I did think that the, the the main actors, I mean it's Chloe Grace Moritz and and I, I was actually kind of it took me a second to realize that Cody Smith McPhee, who plays the young boy in the uh American remake, is also the young man from uh, The Power of the Dog. So uh, in many other films, he's grown and, up and a be, lot of yeah. other things, but, the, yeah. but, but it's just like, it took me a second. Like, where do I know this kid? <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Um, you know, where, where he's, uh, you know, he's grown up into a very striking and, and, and interesting screen presence. And, and, um, I find that there's some of that here with him as, as a much younger boy, but, uh, but the, the film, it just seemed to sort of telegraph everything and, yeah. and just kind of push things. I mean, it, it's, it was produced as a, you know, a hammer film. It was part of that kind of short lived revival of the hammer imprint um that gave us a couple of good films and a couple of not so good films uh-huh. and uh this is one of the you know i i you know it's, it's like an enjoyable time passer but it's it just i just kept thinking of how stark and and um you know how how much more emotionally connected i felt uh to the original film than this one uh you know the bullies felt like movie bullies uh-huh. uh as opposed to kind of the real kind of kids you might encounter on the playland or whatever. I, yeah. I didn't really feel like I was in their world, uh, in the kids' world, the same way I, I was in, in the original film. And then, of course, I discovered that there was another remake of this. There was a, a miniseries version that was mm-hmm. done for Showtime just last year, and it just didn't show up on any uh, channels or platforms or whatever in North America that I was able or in, sorry, in Canada. So. I'm curious, uh, you know, it's getting fairly high ratings per episode on IMDb. So I guess now I got to track down this other uh, miniseries version of the same story that was done um, uh, done last year for Showtime. So, I, you know, I I don't know if you heard anything about it. But... Not much. I did. I did know it existed just by virtue of going back and, and looking. But uh, I don't I don't know anything. About yeah. It, no. Well, that's something something uh, to look for. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, one thing I will say about the remake that I thought was kind of cool was that it has this rear window homage because uh, Owen, who is the name of the character in, in the American remake, um, likes to watch his neighbors. And that part of it, I thought, was kind of creepy and cool in a way that uh, that uh, with his tele- telescope that I, I sort of thought was was kind of kind of cool. I mean, that that aspect of it. But but every lots of other aspects, mm-hmm. I was just like, eh. Don't watch the original. Just watch the original. The rear window stuff just reminded me of the Simpsons homage to rear window where <laughs> Bart Simpson breaks his leg and he's stuck looking out the window with a, with a telescope. And so here we get, I don't So I wonder if people were thinking more about the Simpsons and rear window when he's creeping, creeping on his neighbors. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I didn't, didn't hate the American remake. Like I, I didn't, it didn't make me mad like sometimes a, a, a trashy ripoff sort of thing will do. But I did feel like like actors like Richard Jenkins and um, Elias Coteus, who I, I'm quite fond of and are usually very good, are kind of wasted here. I mean, they're not bad at what they do, but they're not maybe used to their full potential. So 
uh, you know, I feel like those roles could have been played by by anybody similar effect. So the film could have been better using the resources it had at hand, but it was uh, just kind of checking off the boxes. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. So here on Lens Me Your Ears, we're going to wrap up our show with, um, I guess, two remakes of a Disney classic, which is itself a, uh, a an adaptation of an Italian children's novel from 1883, The Adventures of Pinocchio by Carlo Collodi. And, uh, yeah, we're talking Pinocchio. Um, <laughs> at long last. At long last, yes. We have gone back, and I, for the first time, maybe since I was a kid, I went to Disney Plus, and I watched the 1940 Pinocchio, which I found this, like, quite uh, pointed, prescriptive story, reminding all good yes. little boys, they, they, they better stay good, or very bad things will happen to them. Pinocchio, of course, is the wooden wooden uh, puppet who wants to be a real boy, but in order to do so, he has to do the right thing and listen to his conscience, who is little Jiminy Cricket. Of course, he does, and he gets lured into the bright lights of an actor's life. How terrible! But then he <laughs> finds he has no freedom, and bad people want to exploit him. And then he gets taken to Pleasure Island, where everything is free, and boys can do anything they want. They can fight, they can eat, they can smoke or shoot pool. And then they get turned into donkeys. And then later, when Geppetto, his uh, his creator, goes looking for him, he gets swallowed up in a in a sea monster. And imagine if you were a kid at that time, the implication: if you misbehaved, your parents might get devoured. Um, <laughs> I mean, I really like the film, but it is one painfully intense guilt trip. Um, pretty terrifying, actually. Yeah, I, I rewatched. Uh, I mean, I know Pinocchio like the back of my hand. It's it's easily one of my top ten favorite films of all time, and uh, I even have the one sheet poster for the early seventies uh, reissue mm. that I saw as a kid. I saw it in the theater as a kid, and let me tell you, Monstro the Whale was my nightmare for years after seeing that film. Yeah, uh, granted, that was on a big screen, and and uh, I was probably an impressionable kid, but still, that you know, there's some stuff in Pinocchio that is. Truly terrifying. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I loved it. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, it is, I mean, it, it definitely has a lot of power. I, I it was fun going back to rewatch it. Um, and then there in 2022, we also watched two other films that came out. One is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which turned out to be one of my favorite films of last year. Incredible Terrific stop film. motion animated picture uh, that goes back to the original, I guess, story and and really uh, with through Del Toro's eyes and his co-director, Mark Gustafson, turns it into kind of a Frankenstein story about, you know, mortality. It's a it's a deeply affecting, gorgeous to look at film um, and about death in many respects. Uh, and it is uh it is it's really moving and is I just I loved it to death. I thought it was so good. It's on Netflix. Uh, but Pinocchio also got remade last year by Disney itself. And so you can find the 2022 Pinocchio on Disney Plus. And that is the Robert Zemeckis remake. Uh, and it's smack in the middle of the Uncanny Valley, another one of <laughs> Disney's unnecessary remakes that is in some ways is slavishly faithful to the original, except it's live action and CGI mix, which 
And, you know, the other ways it updates things don't necessarily feel like improvements. The whole thing is a very smooth slab of entertainment without a lot of spirit, I would say. Yeah, it, and it just looks weird. Like, like the, you know, the, 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 the lighting of, like, the outdoor scenes doesn't necessarily match the, the actors who are obviously in front of a blue screen. Like, because their environments that they're in are completely invented in the digital realm. And, uh, you know, certainly uh, there are big advances in smoothing out the differences between uh, what's in front of the green screen and what gets uh, composted in there. But um, uh, compost is a good word <laughs> for, <laughs> for uh, the Zemeckis version. I don't, I don't know what happened to Zemeckis after, I don't know, after Back to the Future, I think. He's made, <laughs> yeah. some, he's made some good films in the middle there. I yeah. like I, I like the uh, um, uh, walk them. The Long Walk, I think it's called, is it? I oh, the, well, they're between the, the, uh, twin, the towers. twin Towers. Yeah, yeah, there were some stuff that there uh, there that I liked, but he's also, you know, the Polar Express is is the one that people point out where is like maybe the worst example of that Uncanny Valley thing. Oh, yeah, that was, uh, I, I don't know that I've enjoyed it. I've, any of the digital films. I mean, I stayed away from his Christmas Carol with uh, Jim Carrey, I guess, doing all the characters, basically. Uh, but, uh, you know, I I remember the, the Beowulf uh, version that he, did was pretty awful mm. and uh I, I know there's some other ones in there but i've kind of wiped them from my memory but I yet just, he keeps making films he's he, getting the he shot keeps, to can making more well i guess they do okay uh, you yeah. know and he certainly got enough cachet and and uh you know certainly he's made enough money for disney and universal <laughs> i guess they keep uh writing them checks but uh i, I don't know like uh, and bob gale who was his partner going back to his very first feature uh i want to hold your hand and uh, used cars, uh, which are, are brilliant comedies. Uh, you know, Bob Gale basically retired after Back to the Future. He said, "That's it. I've made enough money. I've made more money than I can spend in my lifetime, and I'm out of here." So, uh, you know, and that's that's kind of a shame because I think I think Bob Gale was his Jiminy Cricket, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the voice of uh, reason on his shoulder, and also maybe um, maybe as much, if not more, of a creative force than uh, than Zemeckis himself. So. Uh, I mean, Pinocchio, there, there, there's stuff in it that's fun. I, I, um, Keegan Michael Key is uh, is the is the fox, and and um, you know he's he gives a kind of a grandiose, uh, over the top performance. But then other other people are kind of more low key. Other you know, like I I, I found that uh, that uh, Jimmy Cricket wasn't as much of a character here, uh, voiced by Joseph Gordon Levitt of all people. I'm not mm -hmm. sure why he was chosen I don't, I don't know that he brings much to that character as much as i like him as, as an actor uh in the normal run of things and it was it was kind of interesting to hear uh um benjamin evan ainsworth who's currently starring in cbc tv's uh son of a critch is the voice of pinocchio and every once in a while i could hear the similarity in the voice which i thought was uh not distracting, but kind of interesting. Uh, and I think he gives a kind of a spirited performance, but it, the whole thing feels very cynical. And, and Tom Hanks, Geppetto is just a weird uh, mix of, I don't know what, like, you know, yeah. especially when they're doing some of the, some of the songs they've written, some of the new songs they've done for this, uh, you know, Pinocchio, Pinocchio, Holy Smokio. I mean, that, uh, that should not have gotten past somebody's notepad and somehow that made it into the film. Yeah. And, and uh, the, the, there's just uh I don't know. I, I don't know that there's a real, I don't feel any sort of genuine love for the original here. I mean, they, they've got like, you know, the, the, the Pinocchio looks exactly like he does in the original 1940 cartoon, but he's in 3d and he's got some 
wood grain texture um, built in uh, into the CGI version, and and somehow that's supposed to make it look more realistic or whatever. But at the same time, it's not supposed to be realistic. It's a talking, walking puppet. Uh, so there's just so many conflicting ideas and ideals at work here that yeah. they all just cancel each other out for the most part. It's funny how they, they didn't include that they there was no smoking. Like in the first one, you know, they, they don't oh, want to yeah. make smoking gross for this generation, I guess. Uh, but I guess you can't even show kids in a movie or kid-like characters in a movie with a with a cigar so or a vape or whatever. They could have gone that way, but they, they clearly didn't. Yeah. I mean, um, and turning, turning, for example, turning Lampwick into a, like a real live kid playing Lampwick kind of I mean, he's such an interesting char- character. He's like a Bowery boy, Little Rascals kind of character in the original cartoon. And and all of a sudden, you just turn him into sort of dull gray paint by making him a real actor compared to Pinocchio and uh, just suck all the life right out of any of those scenes. Yeah. So. Well, let's uh, point people then to Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Yes, very which much so. Which is incredible. It's dark. It's funny. Um, and it, it really goes back to that story of Geppetto, voiced by a very busy David Bradley, uh, who is living with grief after his son dies when uh, a stray bomb strikes the church while Carlo was in it. Um, and the, in this little village in Italy, and of course, it's set during and after the First World War. So we're back there. And this is very different because we're, you know, Del Toro is is very much in his stories, very anti-fascist. And this is what this is about in many respects. And the uh, the blue, uh, you know, uh, fairy here is a wood sprite played by Tilda Swinton, who is terrifying. <laughs> uh, but she also plays some version of death, uh, kind of as these are sister characters, which is amazing to see. Um, and uh, yeah, and of course, there is a, a cricket here voiced by Ewan McGregor. Uh, his name is Sebastian, except here, and he he gets the he gets the worst of it in some respects. He gets crushed frequently, never getting to sing his song until the very end, which I thought was a great gag. Well, that's very true to the original story. Uh, in the original story, Pinocchio was a real sob actually. In the original book by Collodi, uh, he's not a very nice uh, puppet, uh, and and he's very mean to Jiminy. Jiminy Cricket, of course, is trying to keep him on the straight and narrow. And or, well, he's not Jiminy. Jiminy was a, the Disney creation. He's just the Cricket. Um, and uh, you know, and he's he's horribly mean and and uh, roughs up the the Cricket uh, quite a bit. I remember seeing a a stage play as a kid that was very true to the novel. And I was very surprised by the differences between the Disney movie where you're supposed to like Pinocchio and uh, the original story where he's kind of a, kind of a jerk. And and I feel like uh, Del Toro brings some of that back into the character without totally going over the edge and making him unlikable, but he's certainly wildly chaotic and unpredictable and, and impulsive in, 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 in ways that are, are, are more harmful to himself and others. been listening to Lends Me Your Ears. Thank you so much for giving us a listen either here on CKDU or on your favorite podcast platform. We are available if you'd like to reach out to us. We're on Facebook. Uh, we're also on Twitter at Lends Me Your Ears. Stephen, you have a Twitter handle. I do, at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And I am still on Twitter as well as uh, Flaw in the Iris, which is the name of my film blog. 
Uh, thanks again to CKDU for the studio facilities and for airing this show every second Tuesday at 5 p.m. And thank you also to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network for all you do to make us sound good. And uh, yeah, we'll be talking about movies again in your ears very soon. Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.